This is CPX number 68, The Disposition for Holy Communion. This is the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X, CPX, page 73 to 76, question and answer number 27 to 43. God give you his peace, in nomine Patris, Sefini, et Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler Spirit, Spirit of Truth, who art present everywhere and filling all things, treasure of all good and source of all life, come dwell in us, cleanse us, and save us, you who are all good, Amen. In nomine Patris, Sefini, et Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Question number 27. When did Jesus Christ institute the sacrament of the Eucharist? Answer, Jesus Christ instituted the sacrament of the Eucharist at the Last Supper, which he took with his disciples the evening before his Passion. Number 28. Why did Jesus Christ institute the Most Holy Eucharist? Answer, Jesus Christ instituted the Most Holy Eucharist for three principal reasons. One, to be the sacrifice of the new law. Two, to be the food for our souls. Three, to be a perpetual memorial of his passion and death, and a precious pledge both of his love for us and of eternal life. Number 29. Why did Jesus Christ institute this sacrament under the appearances of bread and wine? Answer. Jesus Christ instituted this sacrament under the appearances of bread and wine because the Eucharist, being intended to be our spiritual nourishment, it was therefore fitting that it should be given to us under the form of food and drink. Number 30. What are the effects which the Most Holy Eucharist produces in us? Answer. The principal effects which the Most Holy Eucharist produces in those who worthily receive it are these. Number one, it preserves and increases the life of the soul, which is grace, just as natural food sustains and increases the life of the body. Two, it remits venial sins and preserves us from mortal sin. Number three, it produces spiritual consolation. Number 31, does not the Most Holy Eucharist produce other effects in us? Answer, yes, the Most Holy Eucharist produces three other effects in us. Number one, it weakens our passions, and in particular, it allays in us the fires of concupiscence. Two, it increases in us the fervor of charity toward God and our neighbor and aids us to act in conformity with the will of Jesus Christ. Number three, it gives us a pledge of future glory and of the resurrection of our body. The dispositions necessary to receive Holy Communion worthily. Number 32. Does the sacrament of the Eucharist always produce its marvelous effects in us? Answer. The sacrament of the Eucharist produces its marvelous effects in us when it is received with the requisite dispositions. Number 33. What conditions are necessary to make a good communion? Answer. To make a good communion, three conditions are necessary. One, to be in the grace of God. Number two, to be fasting from midnight until the moment of Holy Communion. Number three, to know what we are about to receive and to approach Holy Communion devoutly. Number 34, what is meant by being in the grace of God? Answer, to be in the grace of God means to have a pure conscience and to be free from every mortal sin. Number 35, what should one who knows that he is in mortal sin do before receiving communion? Answer, one who knows that he is in mortal sin must make a good confession before going to Holy Communion, for even an act of perfect contrition is not enough without confession to enable one who is in mortal sin to receive Holy Communion properly. Number 36. Why does not even an act of perfect contrition suffice to enable one who knows he is in mortal sin to go to Communion? 
Answer, because the church, out of respect for this sacrament, has ordained that no one in mortal sin should dare to go to communion without first going to confession. Number 37, does he who goes to communion in mortal sin receive Jesus Christ? Answer, he who goes to communion in mortal sin receives Jesus Christ, but not his grace. Moreover, he commits a sacrilege and renders himself deserving of the sentence of damnation. Number 38, what sort of fast is required before communion? Answer, before communion there is required a natural fast, which is broken by taking the least thing by way of food or drink. Number 39, if one were to swallow a particle that had remained between the teeth or a drop of water while washing, might he still go to communion? Answer, if one were to swallow a particle that had remained between the teeth or a drop of water while washing, he might still go to communion because in both cases these things would either not be taken as food or drink or they would have already lost the nature of either. Number 40, is it ever allowed to go to communion after having broken the fast? Answer, to go to communion after having broken the fast is permitted to the sick who are in danger of death and to those who, on account of prolonged illness, have received a special dispensation from the Pope. Communion given to the sick in danger of death is called viaticum because it supports them on their way from this life to eternity. Number 41, what is meant by the words, to know what we are about to receive? Answer, to know what we are about to receive means to know and firmly believe what is taught in Christian doctrine concerning this sacrament. Number 42, what do the words to receive Holy Communion with devotion mean? Answer, to receive Holy Communion with devotion means to approach Holy Communion with humility and modesty in person and dress, and to make a preparation before and an act of thanksgiving after Holy Communion. Number 43, in what does the preparation before Communion consist? Answer, preparation before Communion consists in meditating for some time on whom we are about to receive and on who we are, and in making acts of faith, hope, charity, contrition, adoration, humility, and the desire to receive Jesus Christ. Thus are the words of the Holy Pope. Okay, let's take a look at number 33 first. What conditions are necessary to make a good communion? The Pope says to make a good communion, three conditions are necessary. One, to be in the grace of God. Two, to be fasting from midnight until the moment of Holy Communion. Three, to know what we are about to receive and to approach Holy Communion devoutly. Notice number two there is midnight onwards for the fast. That might sound a little shocking to some of you. Eterna Press, who made the CPX that most of you are reading, there's a few different versions, they rarely give their footnotes, but they had a feisty footnote right in there that I did skip. Because it's commentary, I'm putting it in this commentary section, but I'm going to read that to you because their feisty little footnote there tells us a lot about the history of the church, what was expected through the popes through the ages. Eterna Press writes, quote, The fast from midnight was the old Eucharistic discipline. In view of evening masses, which became more frequent at his time, Pope Pius XII gave permission to reduce the fast to three hours for solid food and alcoholic drink and to one hour for non-alcoholic drink. That's from Christus Dominus on the 6th of January, 1953. Later, Pope Paul VI reduced the fast to one hour for everything. See the 1983 Code of Canon Law number 919. Turner Press continues, this last regulation practically reduces fasting to nothing, exclamation mark. 
Thus the faithful are encouraged to follow the old rules of fasts for morning masses and Pope Pius XII's regulations for later masses, keeping the spirit of the church as Pope Pius XII wrote, we intend by this apostolic letter to confirm the full force of the law and custom concerning the Eucharistic fast, and we also wish to remind those who are able to comply with that law that they diligently continue to do so, so that only those who need these concessions may make use of them according to their need. That ends the quote from the Pope and a turn of press. So now me, here's my little addition to their addition is this. You know, even though only one hour fast is apparently the requirement now, I agree with the turn of press and all these popes before 1950 that a great act of love of God or maybe we should say even a very small act of love of God that every Christian did before 1950 is to aim for midnight onward for the fast, or at the very least, three hours before receiving Holy Communion. That is three hours, no food or drink except water, leading up to Holy Communion if you're going to receive, provided you are prepared in the other manners we're going to talk about today. So let's look a little more at fasting and frequency of communion. Uh, because once again, in almost every topic we cover, we now see modernism has changed the brains of every Catholic, including myself. And this is why when we look to see what the Holy Spirit inspired through every single century, we're on a very, very different track. Now, people could say God changed his mind entirely 60 years ago, but I tend to think that 19 centuries of the Holy Ghost leading the church is probably what we should listen to. Uh, so, you know, notice when this book was written about 140 years ago, the CPX, Catechism of Pope St. Pius X, the only dispensation the Pope gave for those who were going to skip the fast, that dispensation had to come personally from the Pope to the priest or the layperson. Nowadays, it's totally crazy. Every priest thinks he can give a dispensation from the Eucharistic fast. It's just not true. We heard in number 40 today the dispensation from the fast was given, quote, to those who on account of prolonged illness have received a special dispensation from the Pope, end quote. The Pope himself had to give a layperson who is suffering under a long illness any dispensation from that fast, at least if this was going to be a prolonged uh, period of receiving communion in that situation. Okay, now, if you remember CPX number 33, I talked about the Eastern churches and even though the, Rus the Russian Orthodox are not part of the Catholic Church, they do have valid sacraments. And we can say this, that they do take the fast much more seriously than us. So for no other reason, if just for study, we should look at what they hold. Let's go back in history. You know, the Russian Orthodox Church in the year 1699 had a note of instruction that I, I just found this on the internet. This is from the Russian Orthodox Church in the year 1699, quote, if they desire to approach the Holy Communion outside of the four usual fasts, let them fast for seven days beforehand, remaining constant in prayers at church and at home. This is for those who are not in need. When in need, let them fast for only three days or for one day. End quote. So notice that was a seven-day fast to receive Holy Communion if you lived in Russia in the 18th century. Um, let's look back at St. John Chrysostom. You know, St. John Chrysostom, he's a saint recognized by both the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Russian churches. He said on the same website, I found this, that many monks in his day in the desert only received Holy Communion. How often? Get this. These super holy monks only received Holy Communion once or twice a year. Now, I'm not saying everybody should aim for that minimal 
of a frequency of reception, but just realize people had a real fear to approach Holy Communion. I don't want to inject Jansenism or scrupulosity to anybody, but again, people who were praying constantly really took it seriously before receiving Holy Communion. So if monks only receive once a year and some Christians could fast a whole week before Holy Communion, not just out of rules, but out of love of God, then we can do three hours of a fast even though, only, even though only one plus sanctifying grace is required. Okay, also number 33, notice it's about who we are going to receive, not just the rules, not just the rules of barely squeaking past mortal sin into the realm of venial sin, but really ready to put the Son of God in your body in this most intimate encounter with His Majesty, the Blessed Trinity. We heard number 43 today, preparation before communion consists in meditating for some time on whom we are about to receive and on who we are, and in making acts of faith, hope, charity, contrition, adoration, humility, and the desire to receive Jesus Christ. And then we also heard in number 42 today, to receive Holy Communion with devotion means to approach Holy Communion with humility and modesty in person and dress, and to make a preparation before and an act of thanksgiving after Holy Communion. We'll talk about thanksgiving that time of prayer after Holy Communion in the next CPX. Okay, number 34. What is meant by being in the grace of God? Answer, to be in the grace of God means to have a pure conscience and to be free from every mortal sin. Okay, most of my listeners out there know you have to be free of mortal sin to receive Holy Communion. Maybe a few don't. But here notice that the Pope tags a little bit more on than just being free of mortal sin. You also have to have a pure conscience. On this topic of the pure conscience, I often think of this line from Matthew chapter 5. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That was Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Now, even though Christ wasn't talking about the Mass, we know that the Christian law is higher than the Jewish law, so we know that that also pertains to us. So notice right there, our Lord did not say, if you have something against your brother, but if your brother has something against you, you're not to go to the altar yet. Now, that, of course, doesn't include if someone's mad at you for you having done the right thing, of course, and that seems very common these days. But my point is that we want a pure conscience, not only on matters of purity before God, but also in love of neighbor before approaching the altar to receive Holy Communion. Okay, 35 and 36. Let's do those together. I'm going to read those again for you. 35. What should one who knows he is in mortal sin do before receiving Holy Communion? Answer. One who knows that he is in mortal sin must make a good confession before going to Holy Communion. For even an act of perfect contrition is not enough without confession to enable one who is in mortal sin to receive Holy Communion properly. 36. Why does not even an act of perfect contrition suffice to enable one who knows he's in mortal sin to go to communion? Answer, because the church, out of respect for this sacrament, has ordained that no one in mortal, sh- mortal sin should dare to go to communion without first going to confession. Okay, most of you out there know what an act of perfect contrition is, but just to review, a perfect act of contrition is when you not only tell God, but are sorry before God, not only because of fear of hell for your sins, but also sorry for your sins out of love for him. And if you make a perfect act of contrition while dying in mortal sin, you can be saved. But it's obviously a lot more sure 
to first of all not commit mortal sin, and then if you do, to go to confession. That's more sure than making a perfect act of contrition. Okay, but now that we know what a perfect act of contrition is, let's mention this. There is a Catholic myth out there that you can commit a mortal sin and then go to Holy Communion before going to confession as long as you make an act of perfect contrition. That myth is false, and it will lead you to hell. Again, as the saint and pope, Pope St. Pius X wrote, in the catechism, and by the way, this reflects every catechism before that, he says, quote, For even an act of perfect contrition is not enough without confession to enable one who is in mortal sin to receive Holy Communion properly, end quote. That dispels the myth that is somehow in the brain of probably the majority of American Catholics now in the 21st century. Very, very dangerous myth. Now, why does he say that? Because he says, quote, the church, out of respect for this sacrament, has ordained that no one in mortal sin should dare to go to communion without first going to confession, end quote. That's obviously a pretty high-stakes gamble if you want to listen to your local Monsignor on that instead of a Pope and Saint and every Pope before him. Okay, finally for the Our Father today, I'm going to ask you not to pray for me, but for Father Jim Altman, a friend of mine. I got to spend a few days with him in California in January of this year. And, you know, let me just say this real quick. What you see on the internet with him, it's not a show. He really is that passionate. And I would add that Father Jim Altman is truly one of the most charitable priests I've ever met after spending three or four days with him this year. So uh, please pray for him. Probably many of you know of his uh, courage and tribulations and everything that uh, like that. Please say that Our Father for him at Benedictio Dei Potentis, Patris Affidi et Spiritus Sancti, Descendit Super Vos et Maniat Semper. Amen.